Romans chapter 2. And we will resume our study of the, Paul's letter to the Roman church. I'm somewhat at a disadvantage tonight, which means uh, you would, are advantaged. Um, I'm, I'm terribly contagious. So does anybody get close to me? Um, I, I don't think I am, but I, 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 the worst was yesterday, and, and there's a little bit of a, um, added depth to the voice uh, for the night. So let's begin reading at verse 17, and I'd like to read through verse 24, which is, we looked at that last week, we'll um, glance over it again tonight. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you are yourself, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do not, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking, through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. I said last week as we uh, looked at that text that what you have there, and, and if you're jumping in here for the first time tonight, you need to know that Paul is in the midst of a, a pretty lengthy argument, uh, a, an argument that is designed to uh, affect and win a, um, a Jewish audience. His goal is to convince his Jewish audience that indeed, um, they too are going to be subject to the, uh, the judgments of God um, and that they are not exempt because they uh, are a Jew. <coughs> and so he's built an argument and then um, next week we'll see that the, the coup de grace is, is his mention of circumcision which was their last bastion of hope. But in the midst of all this argument he pauses and, and as I said last week you can almost see him you can almost see him stand tall and roll his shoulders back and begin to point his finger as he begins to describe his audience and the the one thing that I think could would summarize this description is that they are a bunch of hypocrites and that's the word that um, makes us fight mad we don't uh, there's a lot of things they call us but we don't want to be called a hypocrite well Paul doesn't use that word here <clears throat> but he certainly has the hypocrite in mind as he describes what it is that they're up to. This is a picture, ladies and gentlemen. This is a picture of hypocrisy. And what we're going to try to do tonight is draw some lessons as to characteristics of hypocrisy. Um, we don't want to be guilty of that. And there are some things that I think we can derive from the text that would be descriptive and characteristic of a hypocrite. Fundamentally, what is hypocrisy? It is pretending. It is, a, um, it is a fraudulent form of piety. Um, 
And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but almost irrationally, it is, it's, an, a vain, it's a vain attempt uh, to hide the truth. Because ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, the truth is going to be known. But it is an attempt to hide the truth behind certain behaviors or behind certain uh, denouncements or uh, presentations that, uh, that is nothing more than one grand and glorious pretense. Now, the scriptures, as you know, um, says a lot about hypocrisy. Jesus warns several times. In fact, the first characteristic I mentioned last week, when he calls hypocrisy leaven, I said last week that one of the characteristics of hypocrisy is that it's, it has the tendency to spread, uh, like as does uh, leaven. That is, Jesus says, beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He equates the two. He uses that image of leaven and then says, it's hypocrisy that I'm talking about. And, and, and in that metaphor, I think that you, we can carefully or um, we can accurately draw the conclusion that, that hypocrisy is something that begins to spread among the people. Um, there are some who are more prone, uh, I, I think, to hypocrisy than are others. And, uh, and I have to tell you that I think the, the group and class of people who are more exposed and more prone to the danger of hypocrisy are preachers, uh, preachers and teachers of the, of the Word of God. I think they're the ones that have to be the, the most cautious concerning um, uh, this issue of pre uh, pretense. I want to show you a text that, that uh, has always stirred my soul uh, because I'm, I could be a phony. Ladies and gentlemen, I could be a phony. I had a, an occasion just recently where a young man came to talk to me. He barely knew me and told me one of the deepest, darkest secrets. I mean, in fact, there are two people on the face of the planet that know this about this young man. Um, me and one other. And, and I looked at him and I said, you know, first of all, I'm flattered that you would share this with me. Because I may be a phony. Why would you, why would you come share this, this? Anyway. But, but I want you to see the text. It's in Proverbs chapter 26. And ladies and gentlemen, this really doesn't have much application to anybody in this room but me. But you ought to use it to measure me. You ought to use it to examine me. Because part of it, um, I, I know it's true of me. Um, it's in Proverbs 26, verse 23. Fervent lips. I got those. Um, I am um, zeal is uh, doesn't come difficult to me there are some things that do um fundraising <laughs> um but zeal is not um you know some christians talk about i wish i were more bold well ladies and gentlemen i don't ever pray that i got plenty of that um i wish i had more humility but I don't, zeal is not something i lack boldness you know i'll talk to a fence post and um, so the, the lips that are fervent, oh boy, I got them. But notice what it says. Fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver cross. Fervent lips, ladies and gentlemen, can often cover a wicked heart. Um, 
I say all of that to say that the, the people most who should be most concerned about whether or not uh, they are living hypocritically are preachers and teachers of the law or of, of the word. Now let me give you some just some general characteristics of hypocrisy. I think I've got five, four, and then uh, we'll close by looking at verse twenty-four, which to me is the uh, is the uh, summation of everything. Uh, first. One of the things that, uh, that I think can safely be said was true about Judaism is that they tended to take a general and theoretical and intellectual interest in truth. One of the characteristics I think you can say of, hypo of hypocrites is that their primary interest in truth is, is, is merely intellectual. You know, guys... Um, I, 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 I've told you, I get paid to read. You pay me handsomely to read. I read all the time, and some of the things that I read, you'll never get to, hopefully. But um, have you ever heard of the title, In Search of the Ashes of the Red Heifer? You know that Jerusalem is still waiting for a red heifer to be born, and there was a big flap over there about, uh, oh, I forget, 18 months ago, about they thought they finally had a red heifer that was born. And, and, you know, I, I, um, I know there's got to be some kind of significance in that, but when I, I, I had a man just assault me one Sunday morning about uh, the ashes of a red heifer. And um, I, I couldn't help but wonder what his interest in the ashes of a red heifer were. Gang, um, if your study of the Bible, and I've said this frequently, if, if the thing that thrills you is when you learn a new Bible fact, then I think you must be very careful that, that the way that you're approaching the scriptures is purely for intellectual stimulation. You have an intellectual, theoretical interest in the truth and nothing more. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is characteristic of hypocrisy. The Jews loved to debate the law. And this is where the preacher-teacher really <coughs> finds himself often in danger because he is required to use his intellect. And ladies and gentlemen, far be it from me to ever discourage from any of you from using your intellect. Very frankly, um, I think one of the most unused organs in the Christian church is the Christian mind. We, we head into church and sit in a pew and go into intellectual neutral uh, and really not engaged in anything that's going on. We're just, we're just there for the hour. But having said that, ladies and gentlemen, if your, if your study of the scriptures is to garner more Bible data, then I think you, you run the risk of uh, falling into the camp of the, of the hypocrite. Uh, gang, there are those who study the Bible the way English majors study Shakespeare. That's not what that book is. And Judaism was constantly... Lo they constantly love to figure out how many angels dance on the pen of a needle. Gang, this book is not designed for that. It is not for intellectual stimulation. Now, I'll say this. Nothing is more intellectual than this book. Nothing is mo more stimulating intellectually and arousing than this book. But that's not its purpose. It is not a science book. But when it speaks about science, it speaks scientifically. It is not a history book, but when it speaks about history, it speaks accurately concerning history. 
What it is, is a communication from God so that you and I might know what pleases him. And if we study it for any other purpose, the, um, the danger is that we may fall in the camp and trap of hypocrisy. <clears throat> One of the things that you see, I think, in this description that Paul has here is that you find a group of people who are self-satisfied. That's the second characteristic of a hypocrite. There's a complacency. Um, he's very pleased with himself, um, never conscious of any deficiency. You know the, the story, um, I don't believe you've ever seen this. If, you, if you've never seen this, uh, most of you probably have, but turn with me real quick to Luke 18. This is a classic illustration of the hypocrite at work. But if you, if you haven't, I, I'm sure you have, but I'm maybe insulting your intelligence, but this is the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the, pub, uh, the, not, the uh, tax publican who go into the temple, you know, and they're both praying, etc. But notice in verse 11 what it says about the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. <laughs> Who was he talking to? He was praying with himself. I mean, he was praying, you know, it wasn't going anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. One of the characteristic traits of a hypocrite is that they are very satisfied with their performance. They are very satisfied in who they are and what, they, and what they've accomplished and where they're headed, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one of the things I think you see in this description by Paul. These people are quick, quick, quick to go and tell the others how wrong they are and teach them and instruct them, and, 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 et cetera, et cetera. They never dream that anything is wrong with them. Look at verse 19, uh, Romans 2, 19. Uh, and are confident, are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Of course they're confident. They think they can tell um, most anybody anything because they are so complacent and so satisfied with their own spiritual state. That is a characteristic, ladies and gentlemen, of a hypocrite. A third characteristic. You will never find, well, no, I shouldn't say never, but you will rarely find a hypocrite who is, who is examining himself because he doesn't think he needs to. Um, he, is, it, he makes himself judge and jury of others. But rarely do you find him taking his own soul and examining it in the light of the scriptures. Um, he gives the impression and thinks he's supposed to give the impression that everything in his spiritual life is fine. He's very happy, very um, uh, convinced that all is well with him. He's confident he can teach anybody. He can tell them what they need to believe. He can walk them through this and that and the other. But, but this is a man who never has felt of himself that he was really ever much of a, of a sinner. You know, guys, um, I don't like discovering my sin any more than you like discovering yours. But I have learned, and I think many of you have too, that the closer that you walk with Jesus Christ, the more sin you see. It's a, it's a principle, ladies and gentlemen. I, I've done this before, but um, um, I have dirt under my fingernails. But um, you can't see it from way back there. But if the two of us move closer to the light, more dirt is going to be exposed. That is a spiritual principle, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, I will say it's a dangerous thing 
Because the more you examine yourself, what do you think you're going to find? Gang, every time you pick up the rock, you're going to find something ugly under there. So you need to pick it up just long enough to know that you are a sinner and in great need of a savior. But the, fairs, the, the hypocrite never does that. Um, he has never sensed that, that there is a plague in his soul. Um, he doesn't realize that true godliness is, is constantly dealing with an ever-increasing uh, understanding and appreciation of one's own sin. Not the hypocrite. No, no. He's there to teach and to preach to others, but never himself. Um, he never takes this thing and applies it, applies it to himself, but he does apply it quickly to others. You know, ladies and gentlemen, particularly ladies perhaps, um, we hear things from the pulpit, and uh, the lady says in her mind, oh, I hope my husband heard that. I hope he's listening closely. Maybe I'll get in the tape. When, ladies and gentlemen, that, that, that isn't the issue. The issue is, if there is truth being spoken and applied by the Holy Spirit of God, I am to be the one examining myself in the light of God's revealed word. Um, and then the, the fourth characteristic uh, of, a, of a hypocrite is that he actually is guilty of doing the very things that he tells others to avoid. He mentions in that series of questions there, do you teach somebody else to steal, not to steal, and you steal? Do you tell them uh, not to commit adultery, and you commit adultery? And the hypocrite is condemning the very thing that he himself is doing. That, that's, that's pretty, pretty well known. There is a quote that I've used, and in fact, I've, I've used it with the staff so much they're tired of hearing it. But I tell them again and again and again, what our people need most from us is our sanctification. They need to see that this stuff works. They need, to, they need to derive hope by simply saying, gosh, I may not be striving, I mean, I'm, I may not be seeing victory, but victory can be had because I see it in him. But gang, do you see how were I to, um, were I to be doing the very things that I condemn, how, how grievously it would undercut your pursuit of holy things? You know, guys, um, every time I hear, every time, I mean, when somebody, when, when one of you comes and tells me, well, you know, I just left that church because my pastor was uh, running around with the church organist. You know, I listen politely, and, um, and, but there is within me always a desire to say, hey, could, could, I, could I interrupt you just for a second? I just want you to know something. I have never committed adultery. I want you to know that I don't steal from the church. I've taken people into my office and opened all my desk drawers and say, look in there. There's no pornography in there. Because I want them to hope. And every time they hear that somebody who denounces one thing but does it himself, they lose hope. They lose hope that this thing can really work, that it can really fly, that my marriage can really be this that I can really uh, step over sin, that I can really be and live successfully and victoriously as a believer. Again, there is nothing that sucks the lifeblood out of a, out of a pursuit of holy living 
than a hypocrite. And oh, might that never be mentioned among us. Now, guys, I have 14 minutes left, and I'm not sure I've got 14 minutes of voice left. But in my last 14 minutes, I would like for you to concentrate with me on verse 24, which I say to you is one of the most poignant, um, powerful statements. There's a couple of them in the New Testament. I'm going to show you one in the Old. Paul says that as a result of their hypocrisy, for, or because, or therefore, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He gives us in verse 24 the result of hypocrisy. God is blasphemed. By <clears throat> and the one prompting Gentiles to blaspheme are the very ones who make their boast in God. You know, guys, our philosophy of ministry here at Gracie Van, as I hope you're beginning, I hope you can quote it um, as well as I can, but we're trying to reach an unchurched world through maturing believers. If you want to know where that really came from, that, that sentence didn't come from there, but it really came from a commentary. And, and I have to tell you, I don't remember which one. I know who wrote it. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Lloyd-Jones said something. He said, the best evangelist is a growing Christian. That's where it all was spawned. And, and ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't be more passionately committed to, to such a concept that the best evangelist is a child of God who is becoming more and more conformed to that image. Now, if that is true, tell me, what is the worst? You know, guys, we don't get much of a listen in this culture. We have to create and work at it hard because I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of those who boast in knowing him. Gang, do you see, do you see the incredible implication of that statement? If not, let me point it out to you. People judge our God by what they see in the people who claim to know him. And they have a right to. People judge our God by what they see in the people who claim to know him. And they have a right to do so. Then you know the story about David and Bathsheba. Um, how David, you know, was in the wrong place at the wrong time and walking around and sees a buck naked woman and, you know, and goes and gets her and brings her over to his house and uh, impregnates her. And, and um, I, I want to show you that just one more time because I use it all the time, don't I? Seems like I got a fixation. Doesn't it? I don't know about him. I did have a woman complain to several people one time saying, 
Have you noticed how often he uses the word pregnant? <laughs> I, do. I do. That word is pregnant with meaning. I don't understand the implication here. Um, find if you can Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter two, twelve, real quick. You know the story. Um, Bathsheba is impregnated. David ultimately gets his gets her husband murdered. And I want you to read with me what the prophet Nathan says to David. This is the absolute nadir of the Bible. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe it's the nadir of the Old Testament. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master. Now listen, guys. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why? Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Now David didn't do it himself, but notice what it says. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. God blames David for that, not the, not the sword of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus is the Lord, behold, I will raise up in adversity, etc., etc. Now, but gang, that is awful. The, the, those, the most moving part in that is I did all of this, and if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you more. Why did you do this? And that's awful. But it is not as awful as what is stated in verse 14. Let me read 13 to you. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You're forgiven, David. You will not die. Here it is. However, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to bust him. Oh, my brother and sister in Christ. Do you see that the people who are around us form their views of our God by the kinds of things they see coming out of the lives of the people who say they believe in him? And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, by our actions, we give rise. of the Lord a reason to hate our God. Gang, I say to you, it is not our evangelistic methods that are defective. That's not the reason why people aren't coming to Christ in droves. I think I know the reason, but it's not because our evangelistic methods are defective. People, those people, they want to know. They want to know if this so-called truth of ours, they want to know, is it worth having? 
They don't care whether we baptize by sprinkling or immersion. They don't care whether you're pre-mill or post-mill. They want to know, is what you're so hyped up about, is it worth having? And they make, they make that call based on what they see truth having done to us. They want to know, how do you Christians die? How well do you die? How well do you Christians endure trial? Steve Brown, he has a theory. And uh, my friend Kurt Tower didn't like this theory, but uh, he says for every non-Christian that gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer. So the world can see the difference. They want to know, how does this truth of yours affect your marriage? Has it made any difference? Has it changed us as husbands? Has it changed us as wives? Because if it hadn't, ladies and gentlemen, we are hypocrites. And when hypocr hypocrisy exists, the Gentiles blaspheme. Nothing should give us greater sadness than to think that the way that we have represented the King of Kings would cause the Gentiles to blaspheme. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen, it's not our evangelistic methods that are defective. What the world still waits for is a group of Christians who are maturing. They'll listen to you every time. That's all I got. Uh, if you need to go, um, this is a great time to do it. And the rest of the heathen, we will pray. Uh, Father, I do thank you for your word. I, I thank you that there is no way to avoid its searchlight. That it is uh, such a marvelous instrument of revelation, not only of you, but of us. It tells us what you're like. It tells us what we're like. And uh, Father, uh, often we don't like what we've heard because we don't like to think of ourselves like that. But, oh God, you are rich in mercy and abundant in loving kindness. And we count on that long-suffering of yours, Father. But we don't, we don't presume upon it. We are a people who long to be more like Jesus Christ. For lots of reasons, Lord, we, we believe that when we're like him, life works better. 
we're, we believe that when we're like him, the world uh, suddenly finds an appetite for him. So, Father, uh, we are a group of people who are determined, little by little, to go live consistently, uh, more and more just like the Savior. And it is our delight to do so. We commit ourselves to that, and we do so in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Thank you, and good night.